On this episode, professional mountain biking, the 80% rule, and trail maintenance. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. On today's episode, we have Emma Marinin, Marinin, and she is a professional mountain biker and passionate about getting women out on the trails, on bikes. Um, yeah, and I, we can't wait to hear your story. Uh, Emma and I actually met on trail on National Trails Day doing some trail work for CODA. The, yeah. Um, yeah, for local Central Oregon Trails Association. So I'm really excited that this has come full circle and that you're now here on the podcast. Me Why don't you go ahead and <laughs> tell us more about yourself? Um, I have been living in Bend for almost 10 years now. I moved here from Salt Lake City having a movement therapy practice, and um, I had become pretty excited about mountain biking and racing mountain bikes the last few years that I was living in Salt Lake. And so the opportunity to relocate to Bend and sell my business meant that I would have this, what my husband and I thought would be a year or two opportunity to play professional athlete, um, which has turned into a nine year stint <laughs> as a professional athlete. <laughs> um, so yeah, so started racing professionally, really my second year racing mountain bikes, ended up watching all the other women have a lot of success on teams and having a lot of fun on teams and really wanted to be on a team, but there are very few team opportunities for mountain bikers and fewer for women and even fewer for women who are new to mountain biking or racing mountain biking in there at the time was my mid thirties. Um, so connected with a few other women who were in a similar situation as me wanting to be on teams, wanting to really pursue professional racing and realizing that they needed more support and camaraderie to really chase that dream. And so we ended up founding an elite mountain bike team for women called the KS Kinda women's elite team. And um, we did that in 20, we did the foundation work for it in 2016. And the first year that we raced was 2017. So that, yes. that's pretty crazy. I don't, I follow, well, I follow the road cycling. I don't follow them up, but it's crazy to think that, you know, you, you couldn't find a team. I don't think I've ever heard of that. So you just created your own professional team for yourselves. I mean, that's kind of amazing and, and bold and kind of awesome. <laughs> you know, we definitely were very innocent and had no idea what we were taking on when we did it. And very quickly, all of us were like, oh, wow, I have an 80 hour a week job with juggling our other careers, being a professional athlete and managing a team. And so it was pretty crazy at first that we were amazingly successful. We had a roster of four riders. Um, first few years, we focused on domestic racing, getting as many World Cup points as we could so we could actually have good call-ups at UCI races and had a ton of fun along the way. Um, ended up bringing more riders on, younger riders who we were able to mentor and help them learn their race craft. 
and yeah, the team grew and thrived. Um, COVID was definitely a little bit of a setback for I think all professional athletes um, navigating that. And for me, through COVID and not racing in 2020, and then having odd race opportunities in 2021. Um, my personal focus for racing shifted away from racing what's called cross country Olympic, which is the World Cup Olympic format, which is a basically a 90 minute race where you race on a circuit course that's like five to seven kilometers long and it's very fast and strategic. Um, and through COVID really found my love for doing longer events and multi day events so shifted my focus to doing what's called mountain bike marathon distance, which is like 50 ish miles, give or take and doing mountain bike stage racing. And so I ended up leaving the team um, for this last year was my first year racing as a privateer, which has been a whole new adventure. And might just maybe throw in the background to like what the UCI is to, to, to our listeners that, you know, don't follow cycling and it's union cycling federation internationale or something like that. It's an Italian, I think it's Italian, maybe it's French, but it's the big international racing federation that all professional bike racing happens underneath. So as a US rider, as any country rider, you ride within your country and you move through the ranks um, to get a pro license. And then, and to get a pro license, you have to, every genre of biking is a little different, but you have to have so many starts and so many good finishes to move up through the categories and then apply for a professional license. And then when you get a professional license in your country, you go through the same process where you have to do a certain number of races have a certain enough of results and then you apply for an international race license and once you have an international race license then you can race any uci pro race out there with a few exceptions like i can't go and race world championships um <laughs> i'd have to have enough points and uh most countries are only able to send so many number of riders to like a world championships but with a uci pro license i can race any uci pro race in the world um in mountain biking on the cross country side, we have two disciplines. We have cross country Olympic XCO and we have short track, which is abbreviated XCC. So you see the both quite a bit. Um, cross country Olympic is about a 90 minute race. The short track is about a 20 to 25 minute race, which is kind of like roller derby on bikes is the best I can explain racing in it. Um, typically, or there's been some changes in racing in the last few years where now only 40 riders qualify to race short track. So the highest point qualifying riders who show up to an event and they race that a day or two before the Olympic event and they're finishing the top 20 finishers from short track have the best call-ups for the Olympic race. And what a call-up is, is when we start a mountain bike race, we are on a wide set of dirt, usually like a really wide gravel road. And so we line up eight riders wide and, you know, 10 rows deep of riders. And so your call up lines you up from that very front row are the top eight riders who have the highest points who showed up to the race. And then it trickles down to the back. And that's really, really important 
for these bigger races because we're a start in this massive pack of riders. And the course is really wide for say a minute to three minutes of riding all out sprinting and then it narrows down onto single track. And so you have this huge bottleneck getting onto that single track and you really want to be in the front group that makes it onto the single track because everybody who's back behind in that bottleneck, there's crashes, there's a lot of contact in riders. It's really hard to move forward. And usually on the first lap of the race, because we are so tightly packed, there's a lot of crashes, largely just because of contact with riders and riders trying to make passes that probably are not well thought out. And so then when you have one rider go down, usually a few riders pile into them and then everyone behind has to stop because you're in the forest. It's not like you can just go run around this down rider. So the riders that are in the front not only have an advantage of less chances to get caught up in crashes, but when all those crashes do happen behind them, they just get a whole bunch of distance on everybody else. So to really be successful racing cross-country Olympic as a UCI rider, you really want a good call up. So the more race starts you get and the better finishes you have, the more points you get for mountain biking. Now, now do you sharpen your elbows for that? You know, when all the, 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 you know, I mean, how, how rough, how rough does it get? I mean, how, you know, have you ever taken someone out just cause you didn't like them or anything like that? Or is it, uh, <laughs> no, I've never intentionally taken uh, another rider out. Sure. Ladies are pretty nice, Oh, sure but they are. the starts, <laughs> the starts can be pretty chaotic. The very first UCI race I did was such an eye opener. Um, I managed to thread the needle really well, but it was like ping pong balls of riders exploding around me in that very first start. Um, so after that first eye-opening start experience at a UCI race, I then grabbed a whole bunch of friends and I was like, I need to practice riding with contact. And we did, we like went to Drake Park, we rode in a row and we just practiced leaning on each other and sticking out our elbows and hooking our wheels into each other and figuring out how to stay upright through that. And I'm fortunately a pretty short, low center of gravity rider with pretty good mass. And so I handle contact really well. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, but there's, there's always some chaos. But you never initiate it, right? I mean, that's-, that's Never not, no, intentionally, yeah. okay. never intentionally. <laughs> I've definitely had riders connect with me and they've gone down and I've stayed up. So I, I can't pretend I have a squeaky clean track record. <laughs> It sounds a little bit like uh, a two-wheel roller derby. <laughs> yeah, so particularly short track, which is the 20 to 25-minute race that we do, um, it really is like a roller derby drag-out race. It's a wide course almost for the whole thing with a few pinch downs, and it's a sprint, and it is, it's high contact. Yeah, it's going down is not uncommon. So for the professional teams, when you put that together, did you have a coach? Did you like, how did you determine who was going to be on that team? How do you still determine who's going to be on that team? If somebody's listening and they're like, I want to be a professional mountain biker, you know, how does, yeah. how does so, that all work? Right. So when we founded the team, there were four of us. And so we were the writers on the team doing all of the work. So that's how you got on the team in the first place. <laughs> Um, but then as we grew and we were ready to bring on more riders, 
Um, we were pretty heavily solicited by other women who wanted to join the team because um, we, we were having a lot of fun. We were having a lot of success. We were able to get some really great support. And again, there are so few team opportunities for women. And so we were one of the few opportunities out there. And for us, um, obviously we needed a writer who had some results. We weren't looking for someone who is going to be the next world champion to join our team, but we needed a writer who was definitely competitive within the field. Um, so that was kind of like the bare minimum. We really were looking for writers who we had a really good personality fit. And again, we were very much a boots on the ground team, meaning that every single one of us had roles to fill within the team, which was unique to our team. And so when we brought on a writer, they were also applying for a job on the side to be social media manager or maybe PR manager. Maybe they were gonna do all the financing side of the team. So. We needed a writer who had some other skills and had the time and ability to do them along with pursuing their professional calendar. Nice. And let's go like way back to the beginning. Like when did you start mountain biking and how did you get into it? And how did that lead to you getting into racing? Oh man. So I got my first mountain bike, quote unquote, when I graduated high school, it was a rigid frame cantilever brake diamondback mountain bike. And I can't say I enjoyed it at all. My very first mountain bike ride was Slick Rock. Um, all I really remember about it was thinking I had the biggest jerk of a boyfriend at the time who thought that that was an appropriate first ride for me. Um, and so, yeah, that was my mountain bike through my 20s. Um, I lived in Utah, so I had access to Moab and some other really great places to ride. So I would definitely go on a few weekend trips a year to go ride mountain bikes. But I honestly had, it was fun, but nothing that I, I really enjoyed more the social aspect of it and camping and going to beautiful places than having a real love for mountain biking through my 20s. Um, I was much more focused on pursuing skiing and a trail running path. Um, interestingly, in my mid 30s, early 30s, um, I was on a trip mountain biking down in Colorado, and this was during my running phase, and had a really horrific accident. I actually went off a cliff, fell a few, like about two stories, um, resulted in a life flight to a trauma one center, and then basically a two-year ordeal of medical interventions to save my left foot. And through all of that, I just was like, I don't want fear to take away a sport from me, mountain biking, which I was having some fun with when that accident happened. And through that accident, running was taken off the table. So as soon as I was able to get back on a bike, I went on a quest to just become the best mountain biker I could be so an accident like that wouldn't happen. And that first year riding mountain bikes, I took clinics, did lessons, um, and was always riding with the guys. And it just wasn't very fun because they would be so much faster than me going up. And by the time I'd finally catch them at the top, they were done snacking and I'd show up and they'd be ready to go down. And I'd barely catch my breath and they'd be gone. And then I'd tiptoe my way down these very sketchy descents. And then by the time I generally meet them at the car, 
they were like done with beers already. And I was like, this is not fun. I need to find women to ride with. So I went to my very first mountain bike race purely with the intention of finding women to ride with and ended up really loving that bike race. And I made a friend and it really quickly threw me on the path of bike racing. So cool. So I also probably around the same time as you started racing mountain bikes, this is like, well, maybe I'm a little older, but early nineties. And I had a diamond back probably the same one, this big, heavy steel thing, no, no suspension. And that's why I didn't last as a mountain bike racer either. I mean, I think I maybe (laughs) I did like three races and then I crashed really bad and was hurt and then just never, now I've been a roadie ever since. So (laughs) you're better for me for having gone through all that rehab and everything and and still getting back on it and doing it more. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So not the most logical path to find mountain biking and mountain bike racing, but I just loved it and really quickly starting to race and getting it more serious about it. The thing with women's racing is the fields are really small And I was looking around and I was like, the biggest fields are the elite women's fields. I need to figure out how to get fit fast enough to race with those bigger fields of women and the elite. So put myself on a training regimen and within a year of racing, ended up with a mandatory pro upgrade and two races into that, got my UCI license. And so my first year racing as a pro was really my second year racing mountain bikes. And I had no clue what I was doing. I, uh, it was, uh, I want to thank all the women I raced with that year who uh, tolerated me and would give me some nice hints about how to uh, play the game. What does that look like? I mean, you know, learning the strategy or what are the things that you, some of the takeaways that you had from the other racers? So my very first UCI race, um, I had no idea what I was doing. It was in Missoula, Montana. And as I was driving to Missoula, the UCI official called me and I was like, this seems a little unusual. And he was like, I see you're on the roster, but you're not a pro. And I was like, no, I'm a pro. I have a pro license. And I hadn't actually signed some form. And so I wasn't actually qualified to race. So just like hadn't even done the paperwork right when I showed up. And the UCI official, his name was Don, I still remember him, uh, was really great. And they patched together a temporary license for me to do my first race. And uh, I had no idea what was going on. We did call-ups. I was the very last rider called up. didn't even know what that meant. Like we get put in a start corral and they were like, riders take the corral. And I'm like looking around for a legitimate like horse corral. Like, you know, I'm in Montana. There should be a horse corral. No, <laughs> definitely not a horse corral. It's just a term for the grassy area where all riders hang out as you wait to be called up for racing. Um, so it was just little learnings like that. Um, that start went really well because I was in the very back and slowly worked my way up through the field and again for uci races for xco it's a circuit race and i think missoula is a five lap course for the pro women and i was coming to the end of my fourth lap and i was feeling really good and i'm coming into the start finish line and the uci official don starts waving his hand and his flags at me and is pointing me off the course and i'm totally confused and i come up and he's like you're cut and i was just like wait but no i can still race i feel good and he's like you know you didn't make the time cut off 
And so then I literally like, you know, I'm emotional, I'm exhausted. I start crying that I like didn't even finish my first pro race. And he like puts his arm around me. He's like, no, no, you did amazing. He's like, you're the first rider cut for the last lap. You did incredible. And I'm still just like, I don't even know what this means. So, and he's like the 80% rule, you got cut on the 80% rule. And I'm like, I, I have no idea what this means. So what happens, and this is how I learned it, is that when you do the first lap, that first lap is timed. And then they expect that we'll be able to stay on that same pace for all the other laps we do on this race. And if you fall 20% off of that pace, you're pulled from the race. It doesn't mean your time doesn't count. It means in my case, I was the first place rider who made four laps, not five laps. Um, so it becomes this really interesting game. And then my first year racing, you find yourself doing math in your head, especially when you don't have any support. As you're hypoxic, coming through the start finish, looking up at the screen and seeing what the lap time was of the fastest rider. And you're like, it was 18 minutes. Okay, so if it's 18 minutes, that means that 10% of 18 minutes is going to be oh a, a minute a minute and a half so <laughs> three minutes so then 18 plus 18 is how many minutes and then i subtract do i subtract three or six minutes from that so you're just constantly doing this hypoxic math trying to keep track of if you're going to make all the cutoffs so at least for me and i think most riders your first year all you're trying to do is get fast enough to make it to the final lap. And if you can finish on lead, it's called lead lap. If you make all your laps, like that's a really big accomplishment. I think, so, yeah, it I, was think I, I can like that. just hear listeners going, Hey, I heard there was not going to be math involved. There was no math required for this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just get on my bike and I ride hard and fast, you know, that's it. Yeah, that was exactly my experience. I've got to be doing math and racing my bike. No, no. Fortunately, when we founded the team, we were able, well, we never had like somebody on staff to stand at the race, but we would pay a spectator to give us splits as we would come through the start finish. So usually 20 bucks and a six pack of beer would get a spectator to sit there and tell us the like lap splits and if we were on target or falling off and how many racers were ahead of us and who was potentially closing the gap behind us. So uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So as we got better as a team, we stopped having to do math. That's awesome. What are, um, what do you think some of the biggest challenges that you've had sort of forging ahead and like creating this women's team when there was no all women's team and things like that? What are some of the challenges you've had to overcome? Um, certainly garnering support for a team is really challenging in the endurance side. Um, since we founded the team, the explosion of gravity riding is really sexy, which it is, I won't lie about that, but it's definitely taken support away from the endurance sports. And so talking with, um, companies, bike industry and outside of the bike industry, to of why partnering with a women's professional team is advantageous for them and their marketing efforts has always been a little tricky and a bit of a bit of an uphill battle sell for that um certainly as a team one of the big advantages of a team is we're a lot more visible than an independent writer and so that always helped quite a bit um so there there's always yeah that technical support side 
Um, some of the other big challenges for setting up the team was um, at this point in time, well, and it's starting to change. It's always a moving target, but your social media presence is so important for sponsorship and support. And so all of us really quickly ended up having to start taking online courses and effective social media marketing. And that was a huge part of how sponsorship is determined and how your the level of support you get is oftentimes based more on how effective your social media marketing is as opposed to your performance as a writer. And that's definitely a tricky, it's hard to want to focus on your racing. And for most women in the mountain bike world, aside from the very few top women, all of us have to have a job as well to finance doing this. Um, then trying to also have this amazing social media presence that's dazzling is really daunting. It's, it's a lot of work and a lot of trial by fire to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So that was has definitely been a really just interesting piece to navigate. And especially as we brought on more riders who had to learn how to go from having this fun, personal social media presence to having a polished professional one, um, it's a little tricky. So it was really nice to be able to pass it on to the other younger riders and how to navigate. You're gonna have to be a little thoughtful about what you post and <laughs> regular about what you post. When you said gravity, you meant like downhill, like the, the acrobatic, the very acrobatic sort of flying through the air, kind of like engineered perfectly for social media type thing, I'm assuming, correct? Yeah. <laughs> so both just the downhill riding discipline is just, you know, it's crash heavy. It's fast. It looks so, you know, it's it looks so good on footage. And then you also have the freestyle riding and that's where you get the really big airs where they're going off with one hand in the air and doing back flips. And yeah, that, I mean, obviously that's perfect for social media and marketing endeavors, as opposed to a dripping sweat, mud face, gasping for breath rider on, you know, those, iPhones make photos look pretty flat. So you think we're riding on the flats and struggling. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you think about now gravel riding? Is gravel riding racing also sort of, because it's kind of the cool new thing in town. Has that taken another bite out of, uh, you know, the women's UCI sort of profession, more professional mountain bike circuit? Um, you know, I would say yes and no. Gravel is like a double-edged sword. I think gravel has introduced racing to a lot more riders and the more people who race endurance sports, the better for all of us. Um, and in the mountain bike world, especially if you are really endurance focused, um, gravel racing is just another amazing opportunity and the fields are pretty big and they're very strategic races and there's just becoming huge opportunities for gravel racers, like with the lifetime series that's happened and so on and so forth. So, in that sense, gravel's been really amazing. Um, as a non-fitness-loving endurance mountain biker who really looks for more technical courses, we've lost a lot of the more technical mountain bike races in North America in the last few years. And part of it, I do think, is because the numbers have been reduced. They've been pulled into the gravel world. Um, so that's kind of a bummer. But as support goes, at least 
on the mountain bike side, I think there's very few mountain bikers who don't have mandatory gravel races in their contracts. I certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to a few gravel races. I can't say I love it, mm-hmm. um, but I love racing. I love being in a big competitive field of women with similar skills and fitness. So yeah, gravel is, you just have to embrace it. And since you just brought it up, speaking of fitness, like what does a week of training look like for you? Like how much training and how much like, you know, how much of your week is taken up with like training rides and just staying, you know, on top of your fitness to be able to maintain and race? Um, so in, during my season, I mean, right now we're in the middle of winter where I actually do the bulk of my endurance base building on skis, both Nordic and backcountry, but I'm still on the bike a few days a week. But when it's not deep winter sports, um, I'm on a bike, usually about 15 hours a week. Um, two of those days is doing really specific targeted intervals for whatever physiological systems we're trying to target. And then most of the rest of my time on the bike is just doing endurance rides. So nice, slow, fun paced rides and or choosing rides to really work on some of my technical skills. Um, Then I do strength training two weight lifting days a week. And then I do another day that's more just movement focused. And then I do Pilates twice a week. And then I am 45 and my body takes a bit more maintenance than I think uh, most people's bodies take. And so I have a half an hour to an hour evening routine of mobility work, doing foam roller work, work with balls, stretching, just movement patterns, keeping all the parts together. I think the mobility stuff is so important. It's funny you forget, right? That there's, it's those things. It's not necessarily about getting out and going hard and like being strong. It's like flexibility and all of those things. Um, So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Actually, it's always a good reminder. And I forgot to say that like my most important training day is my off day every week. It is sacred. And on my off days, like I might walk two blocks to the grocery store, but that's about the extent of my physical activity on those off days. So And as I get older, I used to be able to have an off day once every two weeks. And now it's definitely once a week and sometimes twice a week to make it all happen. (laughs) Nice. And do you still do the mobility and sort of flexibility stuff on your off days? Or is that like a pure, pure off day? It depends on how tired I am. If I am really tired and I've been working hard, I don't even do mobility work because even though it is recovery based, it's still asking my body to remodel to the demands that I put on it. And when you take those off days, what you're really hoping is that your body takes all those physical inputs that you've given it and is able to recover and adapt to be able to do it even better when you come back. And so giving it the opportunity and time to do that is really important. So now you create these fitness plans and stuff for yourself, but do you also do this for other people and do some coaching and how, what does that look like? So first off, I have a coach, like I don't, so I am coached and I am a coach, um, for the mobility and all that piece. My background, um, is in, as a massage therapist. So I have a lot of tools to do a lot of my mobility and I'm also a Pilates instructor. So I've got the tools to do those pieces, but I have a coach who does my training plans. I also work with a group called ever athlete who does all my strength training programming. 
Um, but then, yes, I work for Bowen Sports Performance here in Bend, Oregon, and we're a group of coaches. And I love coaching amateur mountain bikers, and I've been coaching a lot more gravel riders the last few years. And my athletes span from brand new to riding and racing bikes with some pretty big goals, like riding the High Cascades 100. I've worked with some junior riders who've been up and coming and are on track to, they're now racing U23 and they're on track to go pro um, and everything in between. So it's a lot of fun working with athletes. And so, yeah, I create training plans for them. And then I also work out in the field and do skills work, um, more race specific skills work. So, you know, we'll go out in the field and we'll work on starts and passing and uh, when you start racing, sanctioned racing, UCI racing, there's mandatory obstacles that show up on all the courses like drops and rock gardens. And so we'll spend time learning to ride those and particularly like riding drops. Um, they're pretty tricky on a cross country bike because our bikes are pretty underpowered for absorbing landings. So the way you ride drops on a cross country bike is is sharp and pointy. So making sure you have it dialed is pretty important. And you might be going off the drop with three other riders with you. So yeah, it's a little different than just free riding drops. I got into hiking, you know, or got back into hiking because of a crash I had on a drop where I broke my uh, wrist in two places. So <laughs> um, yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to ask about the, um, coaching thing a little bit more because you say you coach and then you also have a coach. I would think that like, if you know enough to coach other people, why do you need a coach for yourself? Let's just, I'll put it out there. That is such an excellent question. Like technically I have the skills and expertise and knowledge to coach myself. But one thing that is amazing in the coach athlete relationship is having somebody else who can help you sort through the noise and emotion to come up with the best trajectory or best path, best path for you. Um, for example, um, I got overtrained last year, which was um, a pretty heart-wrenching thing to go through. And it was really hard to figure out how to get myself out of it. And I wanted to get back to training full board as fast as I could. And I would have a ride where I would feel really good and I'd be, you know, hey coach, put me in. And my coach was smart enough to look and he'd just be like, I know you feel really good, but we need to focus on making sure you've got three solid training days in a row that feel good before we start picking it up. And then once we do that, we need to get five solid days. And just having somebody help me with that sort of trajectory. Um, also, it's really easy as an athlete to get complacent and just do the things that feel good and you like to do. And it's really important to have a coach who can be like, I know you're really good at that. That's why we don't need to spend any more time there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's just a lot that happens in that relationship that's really important. What is it, what did it look like to be overtrained, right? So what did it look like to, to, and, to and to recognize that and to realize it and because, you know, there's some people who you, and you think, like, how can you be overtrained? You just get more and more fit. So what, is, what did that look like for you yeah. specifically? And what could that look like for people? 
so, so interesting that it happened to me because again, I coach and I really watch my athletes data to make sure that doesn't happen. So you would think that I would be paying attention to mine. Um, I spent my winter last year doing some pretty hard training and intervals and had lots of conversations with my coach where I was like, man, I'm having to dig really deep to get this work done. And he was like, yeah, you're building grit. And I was like, okay, because grit's, you know, it's the it word right now. And I do another workout and I'd be like, yeah, I felt like I was having to dig as deep as to win a race to get that interval done. And we were like, and I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm like, this is really what it takes to have top level fitness in my forties. It's going to hurt and it's going to be really hard. This is okay. And so kind of just stayed with that. And what ended up happening was the targets that I were hitting just kind of kept getting lower and lower. I was still in the target, but they were just sliding lower and lower. So it wasn't obvious that I was overtrained until you like really look back at the big picture. But then I went to my very first race of the year, which was in late March down in Moab. And it's a three-day stage race, Moab Rocks. And the first day of that stage race, you start in Moab and you race for it's like an hour and 15, hour and 20-minute climb on gravel roads from Moab to the top of Porcupine Rim Trail. And then you hop on the single track and you race down Porcupine Rim. And my coach and I, you know, had kind of set like power targets for that climb and, you know, had come up with a good plan of how I was going to handle the start. And the starts are always really fast on those races and they kind of settle out. And if you want to be competitive, you need to stay with that start group or certainly keep it within your sights. And we weren't even two minutes off the start and I was having to like make choices to let certain riders go that I was kind of surprised I was having to make those choices, but I was like, it's okay. I'm going to warm up. This was the first race of the year. I'll get my legs. I'll be able to kind of rejoin the group through this hour plus climb. And as I went, I just kept sliding further and further back and my ability to hold power that should have been very easy for me was becoming more and more elusive. And my coach was actually at that race and was not far from the top of the climb. And he thought something had happened to me, like I'd had a mechanical or something, um, because he didn't expect that I would be that far back. And uh, fortunately, we turned, got on Porcupine Rim, and I actually, I descended that thing like so fast. It was insane. I ended up gaining almost up, I think I finished that stage in fourth place on the day. And I got to the top of the climb in like 12th place or something. So I moved forward tremendously on that descent, just had like the descent of my life. But uh, that night, like looked at the data and was just really flustered and couldn't figure out why I couldn't perform. And then that was the trend for the next two days of that stage race. And it was just pretty disappointing, but I wasn't convinced that was going on. And then I got home and recovered and tried to go back into training and my heart rate just wouldn't come up. I would go and start my workouts. And even if I could hit the power zones I was trying to hit, I couldn't stay there for very long because my heart rate just simply wouldn't respond. And so at that point it was kind of obvious I was in a lot of trouble. 
So I wasn't recovering. Um, my whole body hurt. I was an emotional wreck. I pretty much cried all the time for a month. Um, it was kind of rough. And the solution ended up being um, just to kind of shut it down. And so I did very little for three weeks and then slowly got back on the bike. And it wasn't like, oh, everything's fine now. I can start training. Um, the first day that I had like very simple intervals, I made it like not even a third of through my workout. And I was like, I can't do this. And like had to like pull the plug and ride home that day. And it was a pretty emotionally and physical, physically just gut-wrenching thing to go through to find enough recovery from all the fatigue I was in and get my body to start responding. Um, fortunately, it finally did. And I got to go to a local race, which is uh, the Sister Stampede, which is kind of Pacific Northwest glory and had a really amazing day on the bike, really fun race and was like, okay, this is the base I need to get back. And then a few days later, I broke my hand. So yeah, last year was a little tough. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and I think you actually had like a, like a physical like break injury as part of this journey. It wasn't just the overtraining, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, some of my close friends were joking. They were like, well, you're going to get that extra rest if you didn't have it already. And I was, that wasn't very funny. Um, but yeah, so whether it helped or didn't help, I then spent the next two months mostly on a trainer in June and July trying to save what fitness I had to be able to race my bike in the fall. And fortunately it worked out really well and I had an amazing fall season this year, but yeah, that's kind of what it's like to experience overtraining. It's just physically being so exhausted. You can't do anything for me. My heart rate wouldn't respond. And then emotionally I was an anxious, depressed mess and doing the most simple things was incredibly overwhelming. I mean, like if I didn't have eggs in the fridge for breakfast, I would have a meltdown thinking that I was going to have to go walk. I lived two blocks from the grocery store and it just felt overwhelming to have to grab a grocery bag and put on like a jacket to go walk to the grocery store to buy eggs for breakfast. It was it was pretty crazy. Now, are you able to like also, I know a lot of, a lot of training is like you get your, you know, you don't train that hard and racing is kind of what gets you in shape. Are you, are you, does that work for you as well? Or do you feel like you really need to hit the race in like peak form? Um, I do not race into fitness. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know who that works for. I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am very methodical. I like to be very prepared. I like all my I's dotted and T's crossed. So no, I very specifically train to build myself up to show up for race season, ready to go. And then really when I'm in my race season, I'll do some fine tuning on my fitness for specific race demands, but I really just hold my fitness the best I can through my race season. And then when it's over, shut it down for two to four weeks and then start building for next year again. You've already mentioned your broken hand in your fall. I mean, obviously it's a very rough sport as we talked about when, you know, the pinch, when everyone comes together into the single track, you know, just in general, obviously just even like training, you're probably going to crash. I mean, 
we already know Jeff has at least two, if not more, broken bones from mountain biking accidents. So, like, <laughs> give us a nice laundry list or a list of the injuries you have sustained in your in your mountain bike training and racing career. <laughs> um, you know, I think I'm pretty typical for all cyclists in that I've uh, got an awful lot of bionic parts at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I've broken um my right clavicle three times and my left twice um i now call my right clavicle my magic caterpillar because it's got a plate that goes end to end with 12 screws through it that look little caterpillar feet um i love that <laughs> um so that's not abnormal i've broken my leg i've broken my ankle i've broken a vertebrae i've broken ribs i mean i think i've broken ribs i assume i've broken ribs they hurt horribly for months and months and months so doesn't slow you down that much um yeah i think that's the big list a lot of broken bones. I, uh, I've been hit by cars twice on the road, had injuries from that. Pretty unpleasant. Um, I've certainly had a lot of stitches. Um, I've had bursitis from like whacking my elbow so hard on rocks and falls. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a laundry list. It's a laundry list. Yeah. What's what's lower than type two fun, right? Is there like it's just like sounds like type seven fun almost, or, or type eight fun? You know what we do for the things we love. Injury. I always figure that if injury is part of is a side effect of what I love to do, and I don't. I do the best I can to mitigate having accidents, but it's going to happen. And I always figure if I wasn't doing sports. You know, I'd be dealing with things like fending off diabetes or something. So I'd way rather break a few bones than have long-term health problems. So here's a question. We've been talking a lot about the physicality of all of the sport, right? Of mountain biking, the physicality, the injuries, the crashes, the training, the flexibility. What do you do for the mental aspects of it? Is there, do you have a meditation practice? Like, what do you do? And especially not only the mental side of the racing and the physical stuff, but like when you were injured, like how did you sort of adjust, <laughs> like take care of yourself? Like you said, emotionally, like, ma, like I can't walk to the grocery store. Like, Yeah, I wish I could say that I had a great meditation practice. I definitely went through a few years of my career where that was a really valuable piece for me. And I walked away from it. I couldn't tell you why, because it definitely helped. Um, but I don't think for me, it helped enough for the time commitment that it was, which I think is why anybody doesn't stick with something. But that's not to say I don't have a really strong mental practice. I journal. That for me is really valuable. Um, and I journal in a few different ways. You know, I certainly journal like how my workout, my training and all that sort of stuff goes, but I also journal just about how things are feeling and what my fears are and what my hopes are. Um, and I spend a lot of time also thinking about my goals and all the steps I want to get there. And I'm not someone who makes goals at the beginning of the year and then checks them at the end of the year. I'm always creating new goals, refining them tweaking them and that in a lot of ways is a big part of my meditation process is just kind of coming back to 
why am I doing this? What am I doing? How am I going to get there? And so being very much in touch with that, with all the things I do, I think is really powerful in its own interesting meditation style, though not traditional meditation. Um, and then I will say, this is almost embarrassing to admit, but getting overtrained and being really unhappy and spending my summer on a bike trainer on my elbows because I couldn't wait bare my hands, I listened to a lot of music and started developing playlists for all my moods and emotions. And I have a large quiver of playlists now that inspire me or can shift my mood, shift my attention. Um, I've just, at least lately, music is incredibly powerful for me. I mean, we kind of have to ask, like, who, who are in these playlists? Like, who are your go-to bands or artists that you listen to a lot while you're training? It totally spans the spectrum. I mean, when I want to get amped up to like do really hard intervals, Cardi B is kind of my go-to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I am. I love some kind of the older alternative artists like Santa Gold is another one mm-hmm. that ends up being on high hit with me. A more modern alternative artist is Coyote that I really love these days. I've been really grooving. This is also embarrassing to admit, but Taylor Swift's new album has been on pretty high repeat lately. Nothing, nothing is embarrassing, That's, whatever. If you like it, you like it. There's no reason to be embarrassed. Love it and enjoy it. And yeah, yeah. no reason yeah. to ever be embarrassed, you know. And also, it's like, all- the members of my favorite band, The National, one of the, my favorite bands, The National, produce all that stuff, and they're amazing. So, Please. yeah. <laughs> That's great. It, keep going. Were there others? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no. It just it spans the, you know, the whole gamut. You know, I grew up listening to a lot of jazz. So there's a lot of jazz standards that pop up. And it's really fun hearing a lot of them get remixed by hip hop artists these days. And so yeah. how, do you, how do you keep a rhythm if you're listening to jazz, though? Is it like pedal, pedal, you know, slow down, pedal, pedal, so, <laughs> so erratic, you know? It's <laughs> That's what endurance training is okay, for. You I don't need so. a you're beat. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> it's all about the groove. Love it. Well, I don't know if any of these playlists are uh, public. Maybe we'll have to share a couple of them. <laughs> I, I, can, I can make that. Yeah, I'm active on yeah. the Spotify. <laughs> we'll have those in the show notes. So what do you have in your racing calendar for, for 2023? So next year I am riding the Trans Rockies Race Series. Um, it's an organization out of BC, Canada, and they do a series mostly in Canada, but the first race is Moab Rocks, which interestingly, a whole bunch of US riders have keyed into, and they've launched kind of a bring make mountain biking cool again in the United States series this next year. And Moab Rocks will be their first race for that series. Um, and then for that series, then I've got an eight hour race up in Golden, um, BC. And then there's a marathon race in Canmore, Alberta. Then there's a six day called single track six stage race up that spans both BC and Alberta, um, starting in Fernie and finishes, I think in Canmore, I haven't quite looked at all the details for that. And then the final race of that series is a four day point to point gravel race, um, kind of down the Rockies right on the BC Alberta border. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're going to be yeah. up, uh, 
Gonna be up in Canada quite a bit there uh, <laughs> in 2023. Been, yeah, yeah, I've been racing up there more and more the last few years, largely because their courses are, in general, significantly more technical than the cross country courses you encounter in the United States. And the more technical of courses, the better advantage I have. So. Mm-hmm. And I just have more. The Canadians are really fun. Yeah. Well, that's, gosh, that's that, that area is just so beautiful, too. I mean, like, you know, Fernie and, and you know, uh, BC and Camor. I mean, that Banff area. Oh, my God. It's so beautiful yeah. up there. What a, what a beautiful place to race if you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's gorgeous. And you have interesting obstacles like bears. Yeah. So, yeah. Obstacles <laughs> you don't encounter much in the States. <laughs> that is a very interesting <laughs> obstacle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I had a question for you. So you and Severia met doing trail work on National Trails yeah. Day. Let's could you maybe we can talk a little bit about what your passion around trail maintenance is and why we should care. Why why should we all be involved? Oh, I love this question. So I spend 15 plus hours a week on single track and not long after moving to Bend, Oregon, I started referring to the single track here as my office. And eventually I started being like, I'm not paying rent for my office. This this seems a little off. Maybe I should start paying some rent. And so looked around and found out that CODA, Central Oregon Trail Association, was who maintained almost all of the single track in Central Oregon. And so signed up to go do some trail work and got trained in the field by their volunteer crew leaders to do trail work and felt really good about, you know, paying my rent to the office and making sure that it was spick and span for others to use. And then started to learn more about what is involved in getting single track or getting trails of any type developed, maintained and available for public use and realizing that it takes thousands of hours for every inch of trail that's in our networks. And I figured I better do my part to make sure that that's there for the future. And so started doing more and more work with CODA and ended up getting a position on the board. And I'm now the Ben chapter representative for CODA. So I kind of help organize, keep a pulse on all that's happening in the Bend single track and make sure we've got volunteers going out doing work, that they've got the support and the training that they need to manage all the trails. And then helping with some other projects, like one of my projects these days is kind of working on developing more skills features at trailheads so riders can work on advancing their skills before they go out on trails and developing them and um yeah there's lots of interesting projects like that so i met severia we twice a year have a big volunteer event spring and fall trail love and we get most of our crew leaders together and i think at the spring one i think we had something like 40 of our crew leaders showed up and then we pair volunteers with small groups led by a crew leader and go out and do trail work all morning. So yeah, that was how I met Severia. I think we were doing trail work on upper fills that day, a lot of drain digging. And we had, it was yeah. a fun group. We had a family with some young kids. Um, I spent most of my time 
kind of helping those kids learn some of the basics about water management on trails. And then my co-lead on that day went with some of the more experienced trail workers. And I think they worked on some of the more complicated drains that we were working on that day. Yeah, no, it was definitely a great experience. And I I can't look at trails the same anymore because now I like I, I see drains. I'm like, oh, look, somebody built a drain here. And then I, I see one that's like not camouflaged. I'm like, they didn't do a good job of like hiding the drain because we were taught also how to like not only build the drain, but then make it look nice. So I was like, well, they didn't do a good job with that. And when you're doing the drain, now that I mountain bike a little bit more, when they don't cover it, how it can feel like a distraction of the trail and like why it's so important. So there was, it was so much fun. I learned so much on that day. It was great. Yeah. I think even if people can just get out and do one day of trail work, it's almost a selfish endeavor because you are going to learn so much about trails and you'll look at them differently. Even if you never do trail work again, you'll notice how water drains. You'll notice interesting solutions that trail builders came up with to navigate the terrain. And I think it gives you an entirely different appreciation for trails if you just do a single day of trail work. And again, it takes so much work. We assume that every mile of single track that we maintain a year is 40 man hours. And in, within Coda and in our inventory, we have over 400 miles of single track that we take care of. And that's almost exclusively volunteer hours to do that. So it's a huge endeavor. And I also am a big believer that as someone who travels around North America quite extensively riding trails, every single trail network I go to, I donate $5 a day to that trail network to support kind of paying my dues for them keeping those trails in good shape for me. So I really, it makes me feel really good. I do that at the end of the year. It's kind of my year wrap up. I look through my log of all the cool places I traveled and rode and then find out who that trail organization was. So it's, it's a really fun way to wrap up the year too. I feel like that's a good practice hiking, like, yeah, hiking wise, mountain biking wise. I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, and you just don't think that it takes people and man hours to keep those trails hiking, equestrian, any of it. And there aren't magic elves that do it. It's, it's volunteers almost everywhere across the country that do that. And it's, it's a big project. I've done some hiking in areas where the trails hadn't seen any maintenance in uh, over 10 years, over a decade. And there, there were places where, you know, I, I, I had, you know, Gaia GPS, I had the track, you know, I could see it was like a, a playing detective to try to even figure out where the trail had been. You know, you look for tree cuts and things like that. And, and uh, it's just amazing how quickly a trail that has been used for decades could also disappear even faster and how much work goes into maintaining those. Right. I mean, there's two problems with trails, you know, if they're not used, they mother nature takes them back um, and you cannot be able to find them again. And then you have the opposite end of that, where you get trails that I say are being loved to death and they take a lot of maintenance, continually narrowing them down, making sure that that footprint stays tight in the wilderness and kind of reducing the impacts of some of these heavy use trails. So you see both issues are really important for trail maintenance. Mm. 
So Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been awesome learning about you as a professional athlete, learning about your personal passions and you as a coach, just your whole experience with mountain biking. It's been really inspiring for those people who want to find out more about you and we'll have more stuff in the show notes, but uh, how do people find you? How would people follow you or any of the things that we've talked about today? I think I am the most active on all the platforms on Instagram, and it's just my name, Emma Marinin, um, which has a lot of repeat letters. So you should just look that up in the show notes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get the link in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a yeah. Few extra, there's a few extra vowels in there for sure. So, you know. Yeah. Scandinavian <laughs> names are not easy. Um, and then I share a lot, sharing more and more information and developing a lot more content on YouTube. And my YouTube channel is also my name with a lot of extra vowels thrown in there. So those are the two places um, that you can find out a lot of information on that. And then coaching, if you're in Bend, um, looking for clinics and that sort of fun things, I do that through Bowen Sports Performance. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so cool having you on. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash A-T-A-P. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women. That's Adventure Us Women. Jeff at The SoCal Hiker. Or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out our show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. And for the third year in a row, we're dedicating March to Women's History Month by having an episode with an amazing lady every week. Next week, our third up is through hiker Sage Clegg. As always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.